Well, hello once again. And once again, I'm going to say happy summer because I'm really excited about the summer. And uh, and those of you who are here at our legacy campus and, of course, uh, those of you who are online, I've got to say, you know, this time last year, we weren't meeting in person. And it was terrible because all I could talk to for those months was a camera, just a little light on a camera. And that's no fun. And so it's so great for those of you who are here in the room. Thanks for being here. It's good to see your faces. Most of you, not all of you. It's good to see your faces. It's really glad that you're here. And of course, it's great uh, to have you online wherever you are as well. Today, we start a new series called Resolve. And that's why I have some resolve uh, right here. And uh, and if you've ever had a pet, if you've ever had a puppy, especially, um, then, you know, probably about resolve. You probably used resolve. If you've got a puppy and a rug or a puppy and carpet, you've probably used either resolve or its competitor um, to, uh, you know, because puppies are cute, but they make messes. And I know that. Because we have a dog, Chewy. Uh, here he is when he was a little puppy. This is the first day we got him, actually. And he was cute, but boy, he made a lot of little messes. And in fact, when I when we got him and my brother-in-law named Tommy uh, found out about it, he called me and he said, hey, do you have a name for your puppy? Here you got a puppy. I said, no. And he said, well, I'll tell you what to name it because you're going to say this a lot anyway. He's going to think it's his name. And I said, well, what? He said, name him Darn It. And uh, now he didn't that that's cleaned up. That's a pastor version of what he said. But he said, name him darn it, because that he's going to think that's his name because he's going to make a lot of messes. We never had a puppy before. And uh, and and sure enough, he was cute, but he was messy. But you have the resolve. Right. And the thing about resolve is when you you know, when that happens, the sooner, the better. Right. Otherwise, the smell is going to still smell. Or the stain is going to set in and you deal with it right away. And I don't know if you've ever been in somebody's house where and don't point at anybody right now. But if you've ever been in somebody's house and maybe have a pet and they've never really dealt with the messes very well. And 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 after a while, they can't they can't even tell that their house smells like that. You know, because it's just the way we just get used to smells. Right. It's just like it smells normal. And you go into their house and you're like, wow, this is really terrible. This is really stinky. But to them, it's just normal because they've not used resolve or they didn't do it soon enough. And maybe you can tell where I'm going with this, because if that's true for pet stuff, it's certainly true for in a much deeper, more profound way with relational messes, with hurts that we leave in a relationship. Because one thing that, you know, trying to relate to human beings, we're all imperfect. Hurt is going to happen. And and if we don't figure out how to choose to use the resolve quickly, right, that that hurt is going to stain. That hurt is going to stink. And in a lot of our relationships, I think all of us have relationships where there's just stuff we've left there. And maybe we don't even know how stinky they are anymore because it's just normal. It just feels like that's the way the relationship's always going to be. But or that's the way my relationships are. But it doesn't have to be that way. And that's what this series is about. Like maybe you've heard the phrase, you know, time heals all wounds. And that sounds great, but it's a lie. Time doesn't heal all wounds. It's a lie like other lies, like if you touch a frog, you get warts, right? Or it's not true or uh, that that professional wrestling is real. 
I don't want to blow any you know, burst anybody's bubble there, but it's, it's not true. Or, or that Alabama pays their football players. A total lie. Total lie. Slander. Not, not true. And time heals all wounds. That's another one, right? Time doesn't heal wounds. Now, it is true that over time, you know, you don't think about maybe an offense the way you did when it first happened, right? Maybe something happens, somebody says something or does something. And over time, you think about that specific thing less. That's true over time. But it doesn't mean that the wound is healed. It's not healed. It's still there. And, and what happens when you just leave hurt like that in a relationship that's unhealed over time, it just builds up. It starts to compound with other hurts. And after a while, every even a little disappointment becomes a really big deal because it's not just that one disappointment. It's all this unresolved hurt that it just kind of compounds with. And after a while, your filter that you see that other person and you relate to that other person with is all clogged up with hurt. And so whatever they do negatively feels worse than it would otherwise. Whatever they do positively, you think, well, you know. They must be uh, there's something wrong with what they're doing. Right. You just you have a perverted filter in that relationship. And what we're going to talk about in this series is how do we unclog the filter? How do we deal with the hurt? Because the sooner, the better. Now, the way we're going to do that um, is by looking at a, a at a section of scripture over these three weeks. And as we do, it might be good right now to even think about it again. Don't point to anybody, but just think about a relationship or two or three where, you know, there's just some unresolved stuff and you haven't sprayed the resolve and you're just kind of moving on and, and hoping it'll get better and just gets that in your mind. As we look at a guy in the Old Testament named David, who was a big deal in the Old Testament. He was a king. Let me take Chewy off for a minute. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, as a king, uh, he was king over Israel at a time in which Israel was at its strongest. And David was a lot of things. He was a great, great in a lot of ways. He had some great leadership gifts. He was a great military leader. In a lot of ways, he was a good king, but he was a terrible dad and a terrible relator to his family and to other people too. And he ended up alone in the end of his life. And it's really kind of a sad thing, but it never had to happen. And what we see and what we're going to see in this series is his relationship with his family, his relationships, particularly with one of his sons, Absalom. But as we're going to see, it's broader than that, how it ends in tragedy. And you and I don't want to end up like that. And so this is a what not to do story. But we're also going to see what the Bible tells us to do in our relationships. So we're going to be in Second Samuel 13. And the story starts out um, easy enough. It starts out. Focused around the oldest son of David, who was the crown prince, right? David is king. So the oldest son is Amnon. He's the crown prince, which means he's got a maid in the shade. He's next in line to the throne. He, uh, the Bible says that on top of that, he was really good looking guy. He was a very likable guy. People loved him. Um, he was the kind of guy that's just good at everything that you kind of hate, but respect. But he's just good at, you know, he's good at, and he's just an amazing, amazing person. And in terms of his gifting, like God had just given him a lot of things. And he was a crown prince, which means he had in a wealthy part, wealthy time in Israel's history. So he had he literally had everything there was to have. He could have it. 
He probably had a Lamborghini chariot and, you know, who knows what all he had. And, and he, and he would have been a big deal, such a big deal. Like if People Magazine were back then, like now People Magazine is full of like Prince Harry and William and, is that right? William and Kate and I, I I'm going to get them all mixed up. But anyway, you know, Megan, is there, is there a Megan? Okay. Is there a Harry? Is that how you say Harry? Anyway, I'm not going to, I don't read, I need to watch people or read People Magazine more. But um, if, if People Magazine had been back then, it would have been all about Amnon. Everybody would have been hanging on everything he did, paparazzi everywhere. I mean, everybody would. I mean, he just had it going on. He had everything. Except then he has this desire for something that he can't have. It's something that is forbidden for him to have. And it eats at him. And it's going to cause a lot of problems. And here's the story. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Now, this is messed up, and it may be unclear right now how messed up it is. So let me just make clear a little bit about the family tree here. Okay, so you have Amnon, who's the oldest son of David. You have Absalom, who's the third son of David, but second in line to the throne. There was a guy named Daniel. I don't know what was wrong with him, but he was kind of like not considered to be a big deal. But Amnon and Absalom were. So Amnon is the oldest son, Absalom next in line to the throne. And they both have the same dad, David. But David had multiple wives. He wasn't supposed to. In the Old Testament law, that was a, they, it was disobedience. And he, had, he disobeyed a lot. He had a lot of wives and concubines and all that. And which means he had a lot of kids. And so Amnon, same dad, David, but different mom than Absalom. Right? So they're half-brothers. So Amnon falls in love with Tamar, who's the sister of Absalom. What does that make Tamar to him? Half sister, right? Now, that's messed up. I mean, I'm from Alabama, and even I would say, yeah, I think that's messed up. I don't know you can do that. I had to, you know, probably call somebody from another state and find out. But I don't think you're supposed to do that. And uh, no, that's terrible. I am from Alabama. I love Alabama. Roll Tide. I don't even say War Eagle since I, you know, I, I don't say that very much. But I'll say it And uh, since I made an Alabama joke. But... That's messed up. Right. And in the Old Testament was really clear about that. Like incest, you don't, you know, that's just, you don't go there. And that's where he's going. And it eats at him and eats at him. This is a desire he feeds. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness. Have you ever wanted something so bad that it, you're just sick until you get it? Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister, Tamar. It's all he can think about. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. That says a lot right there. Now, the reason he couldn't get to her is as a virgin daughter of the king, there was a special place in the palace for virgin daughters of the king. And that's and, and you, you couldn't go there if you weren't one of them. And so he's just like, how could I possibly get to her? And notice... He to do anything to her. That's a that's a good description of lust, because for him, she's a sexual object. Right. And he, he's just thinking about what he can do to her. And he's frustrated because he can't do anything to her. But nobody knows about it until he talks to his buddy, until he talks to his friend. Now, Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, which also makes him a cousin. Now, you probably have cousins that are the kind of cousins you should listen to. And you probably have some cousins who are like, yeah, you should never listen to that one. Right. Do you have that in your family? You're probably going to see him this summer. And uh, and 
And so, you know, you, you kind of know who they are. Well, this cousin was the kind of cousin you don't you don't want to listen to. He was the kind of friend you really don't want to have. He was not a not a good friend. And, and so here's what happens. It says the brother of Jonadab was a very shrewd man, meaning he was conniving. And he asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son? Okay, there we go. Look so haggard morning after morning. Won't you tell me? Meaning you're the king's son. You're the crown prince. You've got everything going on. How could you be sad? But every morning I'm seeing you eating the fruit loops. It's not like you're so sad. What's going on? Won't you tell me? And Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Notice how he distances himself from it. Not my half sister, but my brother Absalom's sister. I'm in love with Tamar. Now, if Jonadab had been a good friend, right, what would he do? He'd be like, dude, she's your sister. That's messed up. Like, we need to get some help here. Like, you know, that's incest is not cool. Like, you don't do that. And if you've got that desire, you know, there's we got to you can afford counseling like we've got to do something. You, you, you know, that would be a good friend. But that's not what he's going to do. And, and I'm going to stop right here for a minute. This is a bonus. Like if you if, if you gave money already this week online or whatever, this for you know, this doesn't count like this is extra um, because it's not the main point. Uh, the main point is resolve stuff quickly. But I do want to say this, that. Do a little friend inventory for a second. Because the, the closest friends in your life are either going to be people who, when you have a desire to go down a sinful pathway, either they're going to be like Jonadab, who's going to say, hey, do what you want. Go for it. Or they're going to be a, the kind of friend, the kind of friend you really need and want, who will get in your way. Because sin makes all of us stupid. We rationalize sin just gets us stupid and we rationalize things that you never would have thought you'd rationalize. And that's why we need one of the reasons we need other people in our lives who can get on our way and say, what are you thinking? Like, do you realize what will happen if you keep going down that path? Like, do you like that? That's messed up. And if you and I don't have people like that in our lives, we will not stay on a godly pathway. That's a biblical principle. That's one of the reasons we need to be connected with other people that can encourage each encourage each other to take good steps. And if you're surrounded by people who are the Jonadab kind of people, then you need some new people. Doesn't mean you have to be mean to those people, but you need some new friends. You need some people who will help you walk with God. It's why we're built around small groups. We don't do it. When we say join a group, it's not about like that's going to do something for us. It's not about doing our thing. It's about us wanting to provide an opportunity for you to provide friends and other people that will help you grow closer to God and walk and become the kind of person you really want to become. Well, Jonadab was the wrong kind of person. Now, I'm not going to read the story. I originally was, but it's a really tough story. What happens next? Because Jonadab concocts away. He's like, hey, dude, you're the crown prince. You can you should have whatever you want. Yeah, some people might think that's twisted, but who cares? You're the crown prince. If you want to do it, you should do it. And, and he comes up with a way for it to for him to get alone with Tamar. And uh, and it is a it's a rough story. If you want to read it on your own, you can read it on your own in Second Samuel 13. It's there. But I'm, I'm choosing not to because of a couple of reasons. One is 
Uh, It's a story of sexual assault, and some of you have experienced that. And I don't want to take you back through that trauma. Um, Others of you have kids with you, or you're watching with kids online, you're really not ready to maybe have some conversations that you would have if I read the story. So you can read the story on your own, but you get the idea of what happened, right? And it's not good. And Tamar is victimized, and then he gets disgusted, even though he's the one that's disgusting, and, 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 and there she is. And what's she going to do now? And I'm sure he would have wanted her to be quiet about it. But good for her, she doesn't. So she was wearing a richly ornamented robe. He throws her out of where, of where he is. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of ornament the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head. It was the way they symbolized mourning and tragedy. And tore the ornamented robe she was wearing to show, I'm not a virgin daughter of the king anymore. She put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. She made it really obvious. And she tells somebody. She tells her brother. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. When he's saying be quiet, he's not saying you shouldn't talk about this. She's weeping and she's wailing and she's upset and she feels like her life is over. And what he's saying is, hey, be still. Meaning, I know this is horrible and horrific and it's terrible. But your life's not over. He's your brother. It was his thing. Like, this is not, you're not the one that is... The problem, you're not the one that's done something terrible. He is the one that's done something terrible. Now, I'm going to stop here again, just a second, because some of you have been through something close or maybe what Tamar has gone through with someone where somebody has crossed a boundary that is way inappropriate, where maybe you something has happened sexually that was against what you wanted and against your will. And if that happens... What she did is a good model in the sense of, man, don't keep it quiet. Tell somebody. Tell a trusted person. Um, it's not your thing. It's not your fault. It's not, and, there needs, and, and sometimes there's this pressure. Well, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. I don't want to. And tell a trusted person. She tells Absalom. And Absalom understands reality. And the reality of this story is that she's the real victim. And that she needs to be vindicated and there needs to be accountability and that, yes, God can heal and redeem and all of that. But she's the victim. But he's the only one that's really going to get that as we're going to see. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. And when King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Now, let's stop there for a second, too. So Absalom, like she lives with him now, he knows what's happened. You think, well, why didn't he say anything to his brother? That's a great question. Like, why didn't he do something? Why didn't he say something? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that's really old, like uh, goes back a long way. Uh, Jesus used it. The disciples used it. um, So it was a common thing. And the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament passage uh, gives us some more clarity. And it lets us know that the reason, and I think this makes sense, that the reason that, Am, that 
Absalom did not confront Amnon is because it was not his place to. That could have been like a death sentence. You didn't. It was against protocol in the sense for anybody to question. The only person who could question question the crown prince that way would be David. And that's David's job. Like so he would have been waiting for David as king and David as father to do his job. But what does David do? We already saw it. He was furious. You know what David did? He got mad. And that's it. He doesn't do anything. He gets mad when he finds out about it. As the father of Tamar, he doesn't go to her. He doesn't console her. He doesn't vindicate her. As the father of Absalom, he does nothing. As the father of Amnon, he does not hold him accountable. He gets mad at him, but he does nothing. As king, who's responsible for justice, he gets mad, but he doesn't do anything. He does nothing. He's just going to leave it. I don't know if he thought it would go away. I don't know, but he's just going to leave it. And that's where the offense starts with Absalom and his dad, David, which is going to be what we're going to follow through the series. We're going to come back to Tamar. That's a whole other kind of offense. But for now, we're going to but we're going to focus mostly through the series on this inactivity of David and, and what it does in that relationship, because he chooses to do nothing. Absalom, after two years of David doing nothing, decides somebody's got to do something. And he does. And he comes up with this plot with that same cousin to uh, be able to have Amnon killed. And Absalom essentially kills his brother to avenge his sister. Well, what does David do then when he finds out that Absalom has killed the crown prince? Well, tells us in verse 36, the king wept very bitterly. King David mourned many days for his son. What did David do this time? He got sad. He got really sad. And he cried and he wept. Earlier he got mad. Now he gets sad. But he doesn't do anything. He does nothing. Absalom assumes he's going to do something. So much so that he runs for his life. He goes to his granddad's house. His mom uh, was a daughter of a king in another country close by. He goes to be there for a few years to escape because surely he thinks David is going to come after him. But David doesn't. David gets sad, but he doesn't do anything. And then we read that after a while, it says, and King David longed to go to Absalom. To reconcile. For he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. Meaning after it goes for this for three years. He is now consoled with Amnon's death. He longs for Absalom. So now he gets lonely for his son. He's gotten mad. He's gotten sad. Now he gets lonely. He feels lonely. He feels like he wants to be with his son. He longs for him. But what does he do? Nothing. Now, we're going to stop there with the story. And next week, we're going to talk about why, you know, and and what it and what should he have done and what do you do and how do you resolve this stuff? And 
But I want to stop here with David's inactivity. Because David refused to do anything to help resolve a really tough situation. He just left the stain there. He just left the stink there thinking, I don't know. I don't know how maybe that it would just get better. And it just spirals. And you see that through the rest of the story. It's going to get even way crazier. And that's what happens when you don't resolve things. And that's why in the New Testament we're told, now again, the Tamar kind of hurt is a whole different kind of hurt than what Absalom is dealing with with his dad and the relational hurts that you and I have. I'll come back to that. But when it comes to just typical, more typical relational hurts that we all deal with as sinful people who are trying to relate to each other, and of course we're going to hurt each other, here's what the New Testament says to encourage us to use resolve, to deal with it quickly. Paul says, now that's a, this is Ephesians 4, not 2 Samuel 13, just so you know. Um, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Um, in your anger, do not sin. I think it's about Ephesians 4, 26, 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now notice that he says, in your anger, do not sin. It's not a sin to get angry. Some translations say be angry, like it's a command. Um, and there's reasons they translate it that way. I think the NIV translates it a little better um, in your anger, meaning you're going to get angry and that's okay. It's okay to get angry. In fact, it's natural to get angry and sometimes we should get angry. God gets angry. And if we're godly, then we're going to get angry sometimes. Especially we're going to get angry when there's, we should be angry at injustice. We should be angry when anybody hurts somebody unfairly. And when you and I get hurt in relationships, we're going to get angry. Angry, anger is a secondary emotion. We don't just get angry. That's not a primary thing. We don't get angry for no reason. We get angry because of something else. In, in relationships, and what he's talking about in Ephesians 4 is when we get hurt. And when we get hurt, when somebody offends you, when somebody does says something or does something or doesn't say something or doesn't do something, like when you get hurt, you're going to get angry. And Paul says, you're going to get angry. You should get angry. That's okay. Anger is a great motivator. But just make sure it's motivating you to do the right thing. In your anger, do not sin. Now, we all know how anger can lead to sin. Right? You may hurt me. But when you hurt me, like you kick me in the shin, what do I want to do? Kick you back harder, right? And then we start this little cycle. And we all in anger have said things to people that were like, it felt so good at the time. It's like, ooh, that was good. It was like, uh-oh. Um, we all have done things that we wish we hadn't done, right? In anger. But what Paul is talking about here is a particular way of sinning against somebody when uh, when we've been hurt. And that is by not dealing with it quickly, by letting the sun go down while we're still angry. That that's actually sinning when we don't use resolve. That you may do, you may sin against me. You may do something really bad to me. But if I don't deal with it quickly, now I'm sinning against you. If I don't work to resolve it, to bring it out in the open, then 
I'm actually sinning against you and sinning against God. And you think, well, really? Like, why? Why is it such a big deal? It's a big deal because if we don't resolve it quickly, what happens? We give the devil a foothold. What's that about? Well, Satan is always, and the Bible lets us know this all over the place, Satan is always trying to destroy our lives and destroy our relationships. He's out to destroy churches and the unity of the church. Why? Because God is at work in the world through his church. And so one of the things he's always trying to do is cause disunity in the church. And, uh, and that, that's just happening all the time. If you and I don't deal with issues well, we give him leverage. We give him a foothold for him to pull us apart. That's true in every productive relationship. If you're in a small group, awesome. Satan is going to try to pull it apart. He's going to try to ruin it. He does not want a group of people helping each other follow God more fully. If you have a family, Satan is actively trying to pull your family apart. He's trying to pull your marriage apart. He's trying to pull your father uh, or parent-child relationship, child-parent relationship, brother relationship, your neighborhood, your work environment. Every positive environment that you have, Satan is looking for leverage to try to cause disunity and polarization and dissension. I think he's doing a pretty good job lately, don't you? And it's up to us to say, no way, we're not going to do it. That's why the Bible says fight for unity, fight for unity, fight for unity over and over again. We got to fight, strive for unity. And one of the ways we do that is when we get hurt, saying, I'm not going to stuff it. I'm going to resolve it or do my part, do everything I can to resolve it so that I don't give Satan a foothold in that relationship. Well, what does that look like? Earlier in Ephesians 4, um, Paul tells us, as he says, don't let the sun go down while we're still angry. You see the urgency, like don't let the sun go down. Well, what do we actually do? Earlier in the chapter, he says, we speak the truth in love. Meaning not letting the sun go down on our anger means we bring it out in the open. That we speak the truth in love. We have a hard conversation. So to speak the truth in love, let's talk about in love part a little bit. When you and I have a hard conversation, I mean, it's just easier not to deal with it, right? It's easier to do nothing because it's hard to have a confrontive conversation of, hey, I don't know if you realize this, but I'm really hurt or I'm really confused why this happened or why you said this or why you did this or That's not easy to do. So when you do it, how do you do it? Well, first you speak the truth in love. So the in love part, what does that mean? First Corinthians 13, great passage to read before you have a tough conversation, a confrontive conversation with somebody. Because first Corinthians 13 gives a description of love and it says love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Meaning if I talk about this wrong, I'm not bringing up something that happened 20 years ago that we already talked about. We don't do that. Like love doesn't do that. We just talk about that, right? Or you, you go on with First Corinthians 13, just say, man, what is the most loving way I can approach this person? Because the Christian ethic is an other focused ethic, ethic, not a self-focused ethic. So how do I do that? Right. So that's in love part. And then speak the truth. What's the truth? You can't handle the truth. <laughs> no, the truth is we don't know the truth. That's that's I mean, we know our version of the truth, but we actually don't know the truth when we've been hurt by somebody. You know, marriage counselors talk about that. They say there's three sides to every story. His side, her side, and the truth. I know my side. I don't know your side. And somewhere in between those two is the truth. 
right? I know what it feels like to be me. I don't know what it feels like to be you. And, and I don't, and, and like a lot of times what happens with when we, when something happens is we make up what we believe to be true. And we have no idea, but we make it up. This is why this person did that. This is why this person said, this is why you did that. And, and we have this whole story in our mind. And that's why it's so important to have these conversations because most of the time that story is not true at all. So I don't know the truth until I have the conversation. Here's what I do know. In a situation, I know what happened. At least my version of what happened, what you did or what you said. And I know how that made me feel. That's about it. Man, you said this. And I just got to tell you, it really hurts. And it makes me really confused why you'd say that. And can we talk about it? Um, and... But I don't know. Well, you know, you, don't, you know, you, we could make up this whole thing, but just say we know facts and feelings. So focus on that. This is what it seems like happened. This is how it makes me feel. Can we talk about it? Because there's a thing in our relationship. I don't want to be there. And I want to understand what, what on your side is. I want to understand what it's like to be you. I want to. And my experience has been, I mean, I'm going to say 95 percent of these conversations I've had with people. What I've found is that much of the story that I've already had in my mind is wrong and there's a misunderstanding. It doesn't mean that there's not a hurt that's there, but that when I understand it more from their perspective, most of the time it's like, oh, well, that does help. And often that person who's hurt me has hurt me in response to something I've done to hurt them. And we're able to have this conversation and be like, oh, yeah. I mean, it doesn't excuse that, but I, but yeah, man, I need to hear that. I need to make that right. I'm sorry. I, I, don't want to, I don't want that to be the pattern in my life. And you can see when you have these kind of conversations and they go, well, now you can only do your part. They've got to respond well. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. The Bible says as much as, as it is within your power, be at peace with all men. So you do your thing and, and that's all you can do. But you do it in love. It's going to give them the best opportunity. And when you do it and you resolve it, you know what happens? Your relationship gets stronger than if you never had the problem in the first place. Because you understand each other better. And Satan, who's there trying to get a foothold and try to pull you apart, when you resolve it well and you actually get closer, he's like, poop. You know? And like, that stinks. We're working so hard. We got some leverage and now they're even closer. And that's what God wants in our relationships. So it means what do you do? Well, you, you, res- you do it quickly. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And, and I like to think of that pretty Pretty literally of just like, why not that day? I mean, sometimes there's some reasons, okay? You don't have to be over literal. Sometimes there are some reasons. Man, I need to get some help or I need to get some perspective. But I understand it. But a lot of times, man, let's just deal with it that day. For Christy and me, we try to take that as literally as we can. And when we did marriage counseling, when we were engaged, I don't know if you know the story how we got engaged. She, she actually proposed to me about 12 or 13 times. And finally, I just gave in. And that's, if you believe that, then believe it, but it's not true. Um, but when we were engaged, our, our premarital counselor was like, hey, you know, you do these inventories and tests and stuff to show how crazy you are. And he's like, hey, um, both of you are stuffers in terms of conflict. Like both of you just try to, you don't use resolve, right? You just leave it, leave the stain there, hoping it'll go away and move on. And he said, whenever I see that in a couple, that's, that's like the biggest danger thing of any, any, anything that can happen. Like that's the most dangerous thing. 
that combination. So he said, we're not going to talk about anything else in our premarital counseling except this. How to deal with conflict. How to deal with hurt. Because otherwise you're not going to make it. Or it's going to be no fun trying to hold it together. And, uh, and that was really helpful. And, uh, and one of the things we do when we say, hey, you know, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Is that uh, we try to go to bed together at the same time every night. Which sounds easy, but it's not. Because she's a night person. And I'm a morning person, so she likes to go to bed late and sleep late. I like to go to bed early and get up early. The fortunate thing I have is that our dog, Chewy, I showed earlier, he likes to go to bed early and sleep late. Like it works out for him great. But because he likes to go to bed early and he's way cuter than me, I use Chewy a lot at night saying, Christy, Chewy really wants to go to bed. Look at him. I mean, he really wants to go to bed. And, uh, and, and this is really personal, I know. And maybe you think, dude, I don't need that image, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Sorry. If it, we need to have a confrontive conversation, we can do that sometime. But um, uh, we go to bed in each other. We go to sleep in each other's arms. And one of the reasons we do that is that it's really hard to do that when you're angry at each other. Like, squeeze really tight. You know, like a python. Um, and there's been a lot of late night conversations of, hey, um, I'm not feeling it here because uh, there's something we need to talk about. And again, the whole point of this is just deal with it quickly. So that's my big push here or my big consideration is I bet all of us have something in a relationship that is there and it's stinking, and the stain is there, and somehow we just think we're, it's somehow going to get better. And unlike David, I'm going to challenge us to do something to resolve it. And, um, and we're going to pray, and, uh, and I want you to have that relationship in your mind as we do. And, um, and, and for some of you, doing something might be getting help. If you've had a Tamar kind of experience, that kind of pain, then you need to tell somebody and you need to get some help processing that and to, and to see how God can help and redeem. And, and, and that would be a great next step for the more typical kinds of hurts that we're talking about. Uh, maybe your next step or maybe your thing is say, you know what, I'm going to um, I'm going to resolve to resolve it, <laughs> meaning I'm going to make the appointment for three weeks from now. Because for the next three weeks of this series, we're going to be talking about how to do this. That's okay. It might be you're ready for it already. I have, I've already scheduled a conversation because God convicted me as I was doing this message of a relationship I have where I think this guy's a real goober and I'm really awesome. And this relationship, and the truth is what I'm going to find, and God's like, no, you've got to. And yeah, he is being a goober. And I am too, I'm sure. And I'm going to find out when I have the conversation of what a goober I am. And we're going to work it out. But I was just letting it go because it's easier to let it go. And God wouldn't let me let it go. So we're going to, you know, have this conversation. Which, you know, not fun. But I know God's going to do something. So maybe it's just like, you know, I just need to do it. Whatever it is, right? Let's do something. So let's bow our heads together. And, and I'm going to ask you just to commit right now to do something. Now, again, sometimes doing something means getting help. Uh, you can go on our website and our care ministries to find out how to do that. If, if this is an unsafe person, 
then it may be unwise to approach them. And you need, you need to talk to somebody else to get perspective and help. If it's a kind of deep, deep hurt like Tamar, that's different too. Or, like I said, you, maybe you are ready to make an appointment or to have a conversation. And if somebody has one of these conversations with you, realize how hard that is and listen, be humble. Father, I know you're going to work in relationships. And it would be so cool this summer if we came out of the summer with our relationships just free of the junk that's there, that we just leave there. Where they're not so stinky. And where we don't have perverted filters with each other. God, just help us get there. In Jesus' name, amen.